Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Nolan Riley. Nolan has a long-standing interest in community history. He's a professor of history and former chair of the Department of History at the University of Winnipeg, as well as being the co-founder and co-director of the Oral History Centre at the University of Winnipeg. The Oral History Centre was established in 2012 and develops and offers training in advanced digital recording technologies, digital storage, strategies for oral history research, archiving, and dissemination. It offers a program of local and international conferences, lecture series, workshops, and other events. Nolan Riley, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Dale. I'm delighted you're here. This is what happens to tourists who uh, who wander through and make the mistake of uh, of uh, calling my office because they get they get pressed into service. They have to uh, be on the radio program. Well, I'm I'm happy to be here. It was, our, our meeting the other day was uh, has proven very eventful because it's uh, opened uh, many doors for me and. Certainly, uh, my wife Sharon and I are getting to know the area very well, actually. Good. Uh, so what brought you here? Was, it, was this purely a, a vacation, or were you here kind of to, to do some digging around and see what was, what was happening with oral history here? Yeah, actually, it was less of a vacation than it was to do the research. Uh, we at the Oral History Center at the University of Winnipeg have, uh, you know, we've been make, sort of doing a lot of outreach with, with other oral history centers in Canada, the United States, and, and even uh, even abroad. Um, and we knew about the, you know, the the work that was going on in Newfoundland, but we had never been here. And so uh, I was going to Pier 21 because we have been working with them in some projects. And uh, I thought, well, this is really the time to get over to uh, to Newfoundland and, and discover what's going on here. And then my wife, who is a, was a curator of history, at the Manitoba Museum, and then more recently at the Canadian Museum of Human Rights, her mother was born in St. John's on Allen Square, right? And she wanted to do some more research to see if she could sort of discover her mother, and uh, that's proven very interesting and very exciting. And it's taken, a, you know, a lot of her research skills, and I've been uh, helping out. And we've been uh, gradually piecing together this uh, story and spending our time walking around Allen Square and yeah. taking lots of photographs. And you know, there's an elderly woman on the corner just standing at her door, and we talked to her for a minute. And uh, she said, well, you should talk to my son. So her son came out, and he's probably about 40. And uh, he said, oh, I, I know the history of the area. He said, I, I like the history. And he started pointing out to us all these different houses in the neighborhood and yeah. who had lived there and uh, helped us figure out why it was a square. It's one street, but how could it be a square? <laughs> <laughs> so he explained that to us. And, uh, yeah, so we've been to the uh, to the city archives and to Munn. And uh, uh, really it's it's been interesting both for her and, and certainly for me. I'm, I'm very excited by uh, what I've found here. And uh, I've been sending notes back to uh to winnipeg saying wow you know you westerners uh you you, you you've, you've got to go abroad and get come to you know come to newfoundland you have to go overseas you go overseas and come to newfoundland <laughs> you know you'll, you'll find quite a distinctive uh culture here yeah and people who really understand the importance of storytelling and and uh life story histories and and not just the stories but of the the real importance of preserving them over time yeah 
I, you know, we, we have this office of intangible cultural heritage and, and sometimes when I'm explaining what that means to people, because it is, it is a, kind of a, a UNESCO term, a government term, and when we explain to people what it is, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we know what that is. We, we, we do that. We, we already do intangible cultural heritage. We, we live in a place where people really do value uh, stories and really understand that connection between stories and place. I think that is part of what uh, kind of lends Newfoundland its distinctive character is that people are rooted in place and they understand that stories are a part of that. Mm-hmm. You, and one certainly senses that uh, when you stop and talk to someone on the street and you ask them a question about the area, although they'll give you a, a full uh, explanation, a full history of, of what's been going on there, and they'll usually weave their family history into it as well. So yeah. it's quite, I feel like I should be always walking around with a, uh, with a <laughs> mic in my hand. <laughs> yes, and, yeah. And my colleague, Alexander Freund, who co-directs the center with me at, at uh, Waterloo, probably would be. But I you know I'm, for, for me, there's something about it uh, something about the uh, just talking with people and and just letting that go is, is something that I enjoy the intangibleness of it. I guess. <laughs> how did how did you get started uh, doing work with oral history? I grew up in a working class family, and uh, when I went to university, I was doing sort of traditional history, political history, and um, I was there in the late late sixties, early seventies, a long time ago. And uh, there was just people were just starting to do labor history and what we called the the new working class history, and I thought to myself, I was listening to people talk about this, and I thought, holy smokes, they're talking about my family, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I thought, well, this is this is what I should be doing. So I started uh, doing you know labor studies, working class uh, history. And I ended up in uh, Dalhousie in Halifax to work with some people there. And I went to Amherst, Nova Scotia, because there had been a general strike in Amherst in 1919, same time as a big general strike in, in Winnipeg. Yes, you're coming up on your centenary for the yes, Winnipeg are, strike. Yes, we are, And uh, so I, did this, I started this study on Amherst, and it proved to be very interesting. But I couldn't find the, I couldn't get the local stories. I could pull a few things out of the papers. And then I thought, well, how am I going to do this? So uh, I decided I I would try and do some interviewing, having had no experience at all. And at about that time, the Ideas Program on CBC uh, was starting up a program called the New Maritime History, overseen by a, a friend of mine, David Frank. And uh, David said, well, an episode should be on Amherst. And I said, well, it's pretty hard to do an audio on Amherst. There are no interviews. So he put me in contact with the producer, and the producer handed me a a tape recorder. And he said, you know, go out and interview these people. I mean, I had no idea (laughs) what I was doing. I went out and I just really enjoyed it, and I got a and I got a tremendous amount of of information, and uh, you know the Maritimes are always thought to be conservative, but I've got these men and women in Amherst saying you know sending messages to Winnipeg saying uh, uh, you know what's holding you back? We're already organized. We already have our one big union. You know when can we join up with you guys? You know. And I, so I interviewed a couple of people about this, and that really started me on the road to doing oral history. Ironically, I never thought of myself as an oral historian, and I think that's the, the history of oral history in Canada, 
is that we've done lots of oral history over the years in, in women's history, indigenous history, working class history, uh, immigration, refugee history. But we've, we've, we've always thought of ourselves, I always thought of myself as a social historian who did, you know, immigration, gender, class, but never as an oral historian. And then I encountered Alexander Freund, um, who was an oral historian, and he came to the University of Winnipeg. And he said, you know, he said to me, you're doing oral history. And I said, he said, you're an oral historian. I said, well, no, I, I don't think so. <laughs> right? And uh, we got talking, and then I realized that, yes, this is, this is what I had been doing and what I, I really enjoyed doing. And he started pointing out to me, you know, the whole group of you have been doing this since the 1970s. And uh, you have never thought of yourself as oral historians. You should start thinking about, about that and about methodology. And it was out of those conversations that we decided that we would uh, create an oral history center mm-hmm. at the university uh, at the University of Winnipeg, and that was you know about thirteen years ago, and about four years ago we formally announced the creation of the oral history center, and we had done a lot of preparation. We raised a lot of uh, we raised a lot of private money to help us with it. Uh, we the university gave us space that no one else wanted, which was now to their regret because it, it's beautiful space, and we raised the money to renovate it, and um, uh, we we now have a large classroom that we can use for community groups. Uh, we have a special work lab where we have computers with all the latest kinds of software for doing presentations of one kind or another, or doing podcasts, developing podcasts. Um, and we have uh, about 10 laptop computers that community groups can take and use in their projects. And then we did we the real coup, and as I talk to people around North America, actually, they're quite amazed by this, but... We were able to build uh, our own soundproof uh, interview room, mm-hmm. a room much like this one. It's completely soundproof to the point that we have to be careful. We have to add a bit of sound at various points because it, otherwise it becomes a sort of dead sound space. And people find it a little bit awkward sitting in there. It's, it's odd. You're sitting in there. There's no, no sound. And you're thinking, this is kind of strange. So... Uh, Anyway, we, we built that, and uh, it's getting uh, extensive use. And uh, in addition to that, we have other, you know, other spaces, offices, and uh, we have space to store all of, uh, all of our interviews. We, we're basically what they call, I guess, the digital-born uh, uh, center. Um, and we have uh, you know, a very uh, a growing, uh, a growing collection. But mm-hmm. it all came out of this conversation that uh, Alex and I had that you know we should try doing this so so, so tell me about you mentioned how you have um, laptops that you can lend out to community groups tell, tell me a little bit about the kind of community work that you do mm-hmm. well one of the th- one of the th- sort of impulses for us to do this work was the realization that there had there had been a lot of oral history being done in Manitoba over the years and in, in fact as, as you know across the country but much of it, except in places like you know, Newfoundland where you had the Folklore Center, uh, much of it was not particularly well done. It wasn't well recorded. Uh, often the, the metadata that you needed, the consent forms were not there, the, the projects hadn't been thought through. 
So there was a lot of lost projects, and I know I've I had been involved in a few of them, uh, a few of them myself. So we decided right from the beginning that we were going to stress with uh, in our projects and with our community groups that uh, we would do we would search out best practices and we would help them do best practices or follow best practices. So um, we uh, so so we bought equipment and we provide high quality equipment for people, easy to work equipment to take out. We standardize all the files as we as we save them, and then we give them uh, an MP3 to the people to use. But we have the original backed up in you know on campus and also off campus. And the archiving function we decided was a really important one for us, and uh, we want these tapes to be there or these interviews to be there for you know future generations. So <clears throat> coming out of those kinds of concerns, high-quality interview, we would try and get them recorded on equipment that is near broadcast quality as possible. We wanted to make sure all the appropriate metadata was there, um, all the forms, and we also wanted to transcribe and emphasis, emphasize the importance of transcription because even though we're, we have digital files that are to some degree universal formats, uh, as we all know, the technology changes, and that was a concern, so we thought transcription was an important way to go. So uh, those were the kinds of things that we emphasize with the communities. Now, we also discovered that you can do it community by community, but then you just keep repeating yourself. Mm -hmm. So we've worked very hard to create a, a series of, tutorial, of uh, workshops so we now have, if they want to do a community project, we'll, you know, uh, we'll go out to the community or they can come to us at the university and we'll give them uh, these workshops. There are three, the introductory one is, is um, three three-hour workshops. One is the general introduction, the second one is on recording and interviewing, the third one is on transcription and, and presentation. So by the time they finish these three workshops, they're quite familiar with what uh, you know, with what's facing them as they do these projects, and they know that we'll be there to uh, be there to assist them. So that has proved uh, proven to be very very helpful, and a lot of people uh, taking it up. You know, community groups from you know small towns or villages that are doing projects to institutions. The Manitoba Society of Architects has been doing a, a really interesting project uh, on the architecture of Winnipeg. And they came to us um, and had us train their researchers so they can go out and do extended life story interviews with each of the, uh, with each of the architects. Mm. But we have projects with immigrants and refugees, um, uh, Manitoba League for Persons with Disabilities. We have a very large project going with the... Um, uh, United Food and Commercial Workers, uh, the, the main local in Manitoba. That's a project that has been going on now for four years. And this was a project you had told me about where you actually have someone kind of embedded in the union who's working. That's right. Yeah. Um, the original, you know, often with the working with the university, you know, I would hire a researcher and the researcher would work with me. Uh, and the union was quite agreeable to that, and we're going to pay this person. I said, well, you know, rather than doing that, why don't you keep the person as a member of your union, and then you have control. 
you know, you have you know, literal, you know, complete control over the direction of the project, as long as you're not interfering with what we do in terms of the interviewing. And the union has been, the president, Jeff Traeger, has been excellent. Uh, we have access to, you know, to just about anyone we want with, uh, within the union, rank and file through, you know, through the executive. We've been doing uh, life story interviews with uh, these workers. And then in addition to that, we've started um, uh, interviewing groups, uh, for example, when they're doing collective bargaining. So when they be, as they begin the process of collective bargaining, we'll interview the bargaining team. And then depending on what happens, we'll interview them during the uh, negotiation, and then we'll interview them afterwards. Uh, there's a strike going on that worries a lot of people because it's Canada Club whiskey that's uh, produced <laughs> in Kimberley, Nova Scotia. There's a lot of people a little shaky over this strike going on too long. Uh, but we've been up uh, interviewing workers, uh, union reps, and th- those on the, on the picket lines. Um, and then we've done some really innovative things. We've done several mini documentaries that the union shows on their uh, on their website, and you just go CFUW Manitoba; it'll it'll come up. And um, in addition to that, now we've been doing podcasts. So we have you know five or six podcasts in which we're just drawing around issues like the you know the the rise of feminism within the union, uh, particular strikes that took place, mergers. And uh, the person I work with, um, this, uh, Scott Price, uh, the researcher, and uh, Kent Davies, who's our technician in the Oral History Center, the two of them are putting together these podcasts. And now we're actually doing something quite interesting. Uh, the union holds most of its meetings um, by phone. It's major meetings because it's hard to get people out to meetings. So they do these phone meetings. And at various points, uh, they'll have to put people on hold. So they used to listen to Muzak. And we said, well, why don't we create these history minutes for you about your local? So now what happens is when uh, they click over to hold, rather than getting Muzak, uh, you hear a story about your union. Maybe it's about a, you know, you know, an individual talking about uh, her early engagement in the union, or perhaps it's someone talking about a a strike uh, but we have it's all based on the uh, oral histories and they also are developing a course they have they do their own in-house training and uh, they have courses for their you know for their uh, members and we're going to do um, uh, and we're helping them develop a, a history of the local for this uh, for this class so that's the kind of project that you know just kind of em- emerges and the creativity of those involved from the union and from the those with whom I work uh, is just keeps uh, carrying it forward. Yeah. And, uh, and it's interesting to hear those very specific kind of case studies because I think I think sometimes in our in our region communities realize that they they want to record these stories. They they have a sense that stories are dying in their communities. They want to record things. Um, and where we haven't been terribly good is doing something with that interview once we've recorded it. You know, it languishes in a in a box in, in someone's mm-hmm. office instead of going back out into the community. And I and I always say to communities, you know, if you if you're worried about stories dying, they need to be told. They need to be out in the community. They need to be accessible in some ways. Um, so I think that that's a really important part of what you're describing is that kind of access back to this information. 
That was uh, that was a central concern of ours from the beginning. We, as I said, we wanted to make sure that the interviews were par- properly done and archived, but we also wanted to be kind of a living record, a, a, a living history, so that uh, we so that we did become very involved, do very involved in presentation. So, how are you going to present this? And we yeah. try and encourage the communities to think about how they want to do it. So some of them want to do books, but they're moving away from that, and we show them the possibilities of what you can do uh, using uh, using a website of uh, some form uh, or using podcasts. Uh, there's just so many different ways to present this and how you can have a store of stories uh, online and available to people that they can go in and, and listen and you know learn about their communities. But I agree entirely that... It's it, it's it's crucially important to get the the stories out there, because what we're doing is we're not so much recording history. We're we're uh, I think we're recording more people's memories, of and, and how people see their past. Yeah, and uh, I've been very influenced by the work of Anse, uh, Alessandro Portelli, the Italian uh, oral historian, who's brilliant and probably. Uh, not probably unquestionably the most influential oral, oral historian. Uh, of the last 25 years. And his work was to shift us away from thinking of oral history simply as recovering. You're going to go and get the facts, like I was doing in the 1970s. I was going to go to Amherst, and I was going to get the facts. Mm -hmm. But even when I was doing that, I was troubled because I recognized that there is a level of subjectivity in in what was being remembered. And then Portelli got us and so one worried about that, and you had other historians saying, "Oh, that's all subjective, blah blah blah," as if their sources aren't right. Um, but then, with Portelli's work, he 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 sort of made that turn to say, "Well, you know, let, let's think about memory and what are people remembering, and how do these memories help people understand the world in which they live?" Because for me, to be quite honest with you, history is not. History is about the world. I, I study history because I want to know more about the world I, I live in and to contribute to, you know, to maybe in some minor way uh, helping us move it, you know, move it forward. Um, so history is not, uh, I'm, I'm not antiquarian in any, in any sense of it. Uh, I do like looking at things and, and talking about them. But for me, it's a very conscious, um, uh, I want to better understand this world. And that's why I would work with you know, the work with the unions and doing a really interesting project project with the Manitoba League for Persons with Disabilities. So maybe, maybe we'll maybe, can we talk about that for a mm-hmm. moment? Just tell us a little bit about that project. That was a project. I had a student in my class who uh, was a member of the uh, Manitoba League for um, Persons with uh, Disabilities, and uh, he started working on this and. Uh, started wanted to do a project, and he was thinking about the organization. And I said, "Okay, well, let's let's start this in the class, and we'll see how it evolves, and uh, perhaps we can develop it into a larger a larger project." Uh, so, uh, in fact, that's what happened. We did. Uh, he completed the initial stage of the project in my class, and then we applied for money. And he started uh, working uh, on this, and it's, it was really interesting because the the league um, in different forms emerges 
it, at the same time in the late sixties, early seventies, when you have all of these kinds of you know student student movements and different kinds of sort of progressive movements out there. And the people in the, the, in the who would form the league saw themselves in that way. They say, well, you know, we don't want charity and we don't want, you know, able people telling us how we should run our organizations or what we need. We want their support. We appreciate their support. But we want to be self-empowered and to, you know, control our own organization. So uh, the history of this, you know, was in the memory of two or three, you know, two or three activists from the period who are, you know, still in still in Winnipeg. So we started working with them and interviewing them. And as I was saying, we do we emphasize the life history interview. So uh, one of our interviews may be over, you know, five six hours of different, you know, multiple sessions. And we really encourage that kind of depth. So we're much more interested sort of in the depth and quality than in the quantity of interviews that we are able to complete. And uh, in this group, we found some great people who, for interviews, who were activists. And they have thought through what all of this meant. And they knew why they are active. And they knew what it means today. And they knew the challenges. And uh, they, uh, they... Became very much involved, not just in being interviewing, but interviewed, but now thinking about how best to present these for people who are, you know, disabled today, and who might benefit from, you know, from the organization and understanding the struggle that they've had to go through uh, over the over the years. Um, yeah, Jim Dirksen's one fellow we interviewed, and I think we've got him. Oh God! It must be ten, twelve hours, and he is a tremendous storyteller. I, I I listen to the interviews, and I just sit back, and I keep thinking, "Don't stop, Jim! Just keep going, <laughs> keep going! <laughs> this is terrific," and uh, gr- you know, a great storyteller. But he's telling things that are Im- important to be remembered, and you know, he gets into questions of well, how did he, how how was he treated at school. Um, interviews um, more recently about his interaction with the medical uh, profession, both well-intentioned and not well-intentioned sometimes. Uh, and you know, from you know, from the perspective of myself, who who's uh, not a disabled person, it was a real learning experience to hear these to hear these stories. The other thing for us in the Oral History Center was a challenge. Because, uh, you know, some of the people we interviewed, how do you do an oral history with someone who can't speak and they use a synthesizer, uh, who finds them, who is able to answer your questions, but they can't do it in in a conversational way because they have to think the question through as you give it to them and then they have to think it through and then it's transferred uh, and, and synthesized and, you know, comes forward as this, as this kind of computerized voice. Uh, which is phenomenal because you, they 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 have a voice, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's what oral history is about. It's you know one of the things we do. We, when we, Alex and I started out, we thought of oral history as a way of what we call democratizing history. It's giving voice, and uh, that's where we that's that was the the base the base of it all. And uh, it was trying to find a way that you know, initially for those who have been voiceless or who have whose voices have been lost to record that. But, you know, interestingly enough, we've also become involved in doing business histories because um, just like any other 
story, but especially in business, you know, you look at all those big decisions that are made. Uh, they um, they they aren't recorded. They're consciously not written down. So we started doing some work with with that, and we do that more on a on a paid basis because funding is always a challenge. And if we do it professionally, they they seem to be quite happy to pay us a reasonable amount of money to you know to you know to do this. So yeah, oral history is. Uh, is great and it was it has been tremendous experience being here i you know i appreciate meeting with you and uh i was at the uh, folklore um archives yes, language yeah. archive and language um and i met with uh nicole quite at length sharon and i were meeting with her she's wonderful yeah uh, and you know many of the issues that they face are, are the issues that that we face as well and uh, so it's just been a very, very much learning experience, and um, I'll be filling up our our blog and Facebook. Well, we uh, look forward to it. I well, that's, maybe that's a good way to end uh, today. If people want more information about the Oral History Center, where can they go? Simplest is to go to our website. It's uh, all lowercase, uh, oralhistorycenter.ca, oralhistorycenter.ca, and center is R-E, not E-R. Uh, also, you can find us the same tag under Facebook. Just go onto Facebook and type in Oral History Center. For some reason, no one ever just calls themselves the Oral History Center. So <laughs> we thought, okay, we'll do that. You've cornered the market. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Well, thank you for coming in. Well, thank you. I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. You can find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our production assistant is Tara Barrett, and we would love to know what you think of the show. You can leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page, or you can tweet us at ich underscore NL. Thanks for listening.